Please turn in the Word of God this morning, beloved, to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. I think the ladies had a good time yesterday in Winston-Salem for those who were able to make the journey there. They were encouraged by the fellowship and the ministry of Mrs. Mooney and their afternoon together. So, thankful for the fellowship of the saints, different congregations. Hebrews 7, we are in the heart of the argument and the presentation of the apostle here. There's certainly language that is challenging, but I trust that as we work our way through it, some of it at least will become more clear to you. And at the very least, the larger argument, the bigger argument of what's going on here will begin to make sense. So, once again, we'll, we'll read from verse 1 and read through verse 19. So, just take time to read these opening 19 verses. Hebrews 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of the brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receiveth tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And, yet, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. Amen. And may God write His precious and infallible Word 
on our hearts. Let's pray, beloved. Let's seek the Lord again this morning for the Spirit's work. Pray, Christian, for the Spirit's work in your life. Oh God, this is the need of the hour. When we come to the Word, we need there to be the activity of God in our midst. And just like those two on the road to Emmaus, there was that enlightenment given where the scales were removed. We pray the same, that the Spirit of God would come in power and in might and cause there to be a removal of scales, that we might behold wondrous things in Thy law. Strengthen our hearts. Prepare us to live the Christian life in victory on the merit of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and cause the word to run, to save, to sanctify, to make thy people a little more like Christ. Cause there to be advancement today. Give power to the preacher and a sense of the divine in our midst where we know the Lord is here. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How can we as sinners draw near to God? That's a question I want us to begin with since the last line that we read in this passage, verse 19, by the which we draw nigh unto God. How can it be? How can it be that we, guilty, hell-deserving sinners, could ever draw near to God. Later in this book, the apostle is going to underline the fact that God is a consuming fire. And yet this God can be approached. Approached by, not, we're, talk, we're not talking about six-winged beings. We're talking about the fallen sons of Adam. We're talking about those who are guilty of sin every day those who fall short, those who commit crime upon crime upon crime in breaking the law of God. How can we draw near to God? If you're here this morning and some of what we're doing here is new to you, that you're, you're not a Christian or you're not familiar with perhaps our church and you're not, let's just put it this way, you're not sure where you're going when you die then you have to be asking yourself, how can I know that I can draw near to God? I mean, that's what heaven is. It's the bringing of a sinner into the very presence of God, bringing him near to God. And yet here in this life, there's also the enjoyment and the privilege of sinners being brought near to God. And I come back and put before you the question, how is it so? How is it so? If you think that you can just waltz into the presence of God because, well, God made us. He made all things. He loves all His creation. I can just walk into His presence. You have no comprehension of your sin. You don't know yourself. You don't know God. You're in great ignorance, and you need to really begin 101 with regard to the Bible and what it says. Adam flees from God in the garden. At least he understood that he had no right to stand boldly in His presence. But in, his, in the mercy of God, he is sought out. That's what God does. He seeks out sinners, despite the fact they have no right to his presence, no right to walk before him. Well, 
We draw nigh to God. That's the concluding remark of our passage today. And part of what is remarkable about this is that we are sinners being brought near to God. And as this unfolds in the gospel, it takes on a particular application or there's a particular focus in the book of Hebrews as it expounds to us Christ in his priestly office. One of the things that God made clear to the Israelite is that they needed a mediator. They needed someone to bring them near to God. They needed someone to bridge the gap, so to speak. Someone who had an appointment by God, despite the fallen condition of man, to bring sinners near. And so you have in the Old Testament the setting aside of the tribe of Levi and the priests, particularly of the sons of Aaron, being appointed to have this peculiar work of standing between God and men. And this all pointed forwards, pointed forward to the day when the Messiah would come and assume that role in its full glory and perfection. What we have before us in the heart of Hebrews is really an argument. What we're coming to here, what we're looking at in Hebrews 7, is the fact that it was always meant to be that the Levitical priesthood was temporary. It was never God's intention for it to be permanent. And that's what the apostle unfolds here before us. Because the very fact that it had carried on for, for centuries made many believe that this is something, not only because of its origin from God, but its continuity through the centuries made them feel very much attached to it and reluctant to let go. And what the apostle is arguing is that you must let go. You must let go because it's abolished. Or in the language of our passage, verse 19, disannulling, the abolition, the removal, the setting aside. It is no longer to be looked to or depended upon or relevant now that the Messiah has come. But as I say, as I said last week, we, we get attached, don't we, by tradition. We get attached by practice, the things that we have done over and over and over again. But this argument is, this, that is here in this passage is showing that it was always the intention of God to supplant the Levitical priesthood by the priesthood of the Messiah. Now remember over this epistle how the apostle has been arguing for the superiority of our Lord Jesus. He is greater than angels. We've seen that. He is greater than Moses. We have seen that. He is greater than Joshua. We have seen that. Now we're seeing that he's greater than Aaron. And this argument goes back to chapter 5, where, again, he begins entering into the, really the flow of the argument regarding priesthood. Chapter, if you just look at chapter 5, verse 1, you can see that plainly. And he begins to deal with Aaron and the priesthood of Aaron and throws in then... Psalm 110, verse 4, in, in verse 6 of that chapter, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he's dealing with Christ, and he's putting him before in terms of his priesthood. But evidently, this was a sticking point. This was difficult for Jews to grasp, because when he gets to verse 10 and iterates again, Psalm 110, verse 4, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, this is Jesus, and he says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you're dull of hearing. And he moves on then to, to address the, the condition of his hearers because they were not ready 
to receive what he was about to put before them. They were struggling with this whole point. But the struggle with the priesthood of the Messiah and it resulting in the abolition of the Levitical priesthood was not a struggle of comprehension so much as it was a lack of faith. They were not trusting God. What, what this is addressing through this book is that you need to trust God. Faith, trusting God. You see that worked out, of course, in Hebrews 11, where by faith, by faith, by faith, this is the way we must live our life. Trusting God, resting in Christ. But to help facilitate their mind, help them understand in, in the face of other arguments that would have been coming from the, the Judaizers and even rising in their own hearts that would have caused it to be difficult for them to let go of Aaron and his sons, as it were, there are clear arguments made. So, our text for today is verse 11 through 19. We've gotten as far as verse 10, so we're entering into verse 11 through 19. He is continuing then this whole presentation of priesthood. It's going to be a significant part of the argument. And I've titled my message this morning, A Priesthood with Better Hope. A Priesthood with Better Hope. You can see that drawn from verse 19, the bringing in of a better hope. This comes about through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we look at these verses, note with me three things. The first of which is the obvious imperfection. The obvious imperfection. In verses 11 through 14, there is an obvious imperfection. Verse 11, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, just skip the parenthesis for now, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? As you look at this obvious imperfection, two things to see here. The first of which is a failure to grant perfection. There is a failure to grant perfection. In making the case, the apostle states the obvious. If perfection was possible, the word perfection has the idea of obtaining all that is necessary to be rightly related to God. You can think of it in specific doctrines such as justification, sanctification, adoption, so on and so forth, glorification. But if we can just summarize it in this way, that which is necessary to be rightly related to God, if what man needs to be rightly related to God, if what man needs to draw near to God, rightly so, could be accomplished through the Levitical priesthood, what need is there of another priesthood? And of course, the other priesthood is not something that the apostle is inventing. It's something, as we'll see in a moment, comes from Scripture itself. The Levitical priesthood failed to pardon for sin. It failed to give real cleansing. It failed to rightly justify. It did not wash men and make them clean. The Levitical priesthood was conducted every day with the killing of animal after animal after animal after animal, and it could never avail to the need of man. Now, if you just for a moment, skip forward to chapter 10 because it is put in very terse and clear language in chapter 10 regarding the point that I'm making. 
And it even uses similar language. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, it's, it's, it's pointing forward. It, it has a, a shadowy representation that's not the substance itself, but it presents shadowy, this, this understanding of what men need and what is to come. The law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereon too perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience for, of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. We need to be made perfect. You see that at the end of verse 1 of chapter 10. It doesn't make the comers thereon to perfect. Those who engage in the practice, in the ceremony, in all that they were called to do, it doesn't make them perfect. It doesn't make them complete. It doesn't cause them to have that standing before God that they need. And that is what's being stated in chapter 7, verse 11. It can't. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, if I could just skip forward a little bit and state it plainly, because when he says after the order of Melchizedek, again he's quoting Psalm 110 verse 1, what he is doing is, if I can put it in very sort of plain speech, why on earth would the prophet David ever have made reference to another priesthood? if the priesthood of Aaron could address the problem. It could never deal with the problem. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should rise? There isn't a need of one. So let's make this plain in case there's any confusion. No sacrifice ever offered in the Old Testament washed away sin. The first sacrifice was performed by the hand of God himself. When Adam, trying to clothe himself with his fig leaves, God intervenes steps in, kills an animal, we're not told what, and clothes Adam with skins. You have there just a little insight into the first sacrifice. And yet, even though performed by the hand of God, that did not deal with Adam's sin. It only pointed to the one who would come. Might I suggest the very Son of God Himself who would take on flesh is the one there dealing with Adam and Eve. He's the one there in the garden addressing the problem. By His own hand, as it were, He is doing what He Himself must do. When He will take on not the form of angels, but the seed 
of Abraham. He will take flesh and become like unto his brethren that he might offer himself without spot to God. But even though that sacrifice there was performed by his own hand, it could not actually address Adam's sin. It pointed forward. It told Adam to hope. It told Adam to believe. And so what does he do? In faith, he takes his wife and he calls her Eve because she will be the mother of life. The life I'm looking for, the hope that I'm trusting in will come. Not one sacrifice dealt with sin. It indicated the trust of the person. It indicated often their faith and their belief that this is what they needed. It reflected a life of faith that they were constantly recognizing first their own shortcomings, second the answer. An answer that God would provide. Oh, isn't it so beautifully illustrated for us in Genesis 22? Jehovah Jireh. And I have stated this before, but let me utter it again. When you state Jehovah Jireh and the only thing you're thinking about is making ends meet and causing the budget to balance, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. Jehovah Jireh is not about paying bills. Jehovah Jireh is about addressing the wages of sin which is death. That's what Abraham understood. The Lord will provide. He'll provide a lamb. He will provide one day one who will deal fully with the sin of men. Put it away by the sacrifice of himself. Oh, the Levitical system was important. It was an instrument of instruction. It revealed the problem, it pointed to the answer, but it stopped short of providing the solution. And that is obvious. I mean, much of the argument here, as strange as some of the language may be, it's, it's very logical. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, and he has quoted Psalm 110 verse 4 several times by this stage, what further need was there that another priest should rise? What is David talking about in Psalm 110 if all we need is Aaron and his sons? Psalm 110 speaks as it does because it prophetically anticipates something better. David, under inspiration during a time when the Levitical priesthood is in full swing, anticipated a different priesthood that would actually deal with sin one after the order of Melchizedek. I can't go over old ground regarding Melchizedek. Go back and listen to previous messages if you've missed those. So, the obvious imperfection. There is first a failure to grant perfection. There is second a forewarning in David's prophecy. A forewarning in David's prophecy. So, it fails to grant perfection and there is a forewarning in David's prophecy. Let's just develop a little more then what we've already intimated. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Just, just hold the thought of verse 12 for a moment. 
reading on into verse 13 and following here. For he of whom these things are spoken, well, who's he referring to there? He's speaking of Jesus. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Now, he is dealing with Jesus. That's the focus. You can see that at the end of chapter 6, verse 20, where you have it pulled together. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it's plain that he is pointing to Christ in re making reference to the order of Melchizedek. But in identifying Jesus as the priest after the order of Melchizedek, looking at a priest who was not from the tribe of Levi created a huge problem because all the Jews had known were priests from the tribe of Levi, at least from the time that it was instituted. And so, Psalm 110 verse 4, and it's the repetition of its quotation, in part it, it functions as a forewarning. You go back there, and you, you read Psalm 110, and it, you have that in verse 4, this statement that keeps coming up, that he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you had just stopped for a moment reading that, when David penned it, you would have, you would have had to be asking the question, what is he talking about? You have a priesthood. A priesthood after the order of Aaron. Why is he talking about a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek? And it is unanimously understood by the Jews as well as by the Christian church that Psalm 110 is distinctly messianic. The Lord said unto my Lord, is how it begins. David recognizes that God addressed David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies, mine enemies thy footstool. It's plainly stating that the Messiah who's being hoped for, anticipated, is being singled out, set aside to be in a position of authority. David recognizes that and then goes on to say that thou art a priest. The one that God says and David recognizes as Lord and he's set at the right hand just go there. I, I, I'm assuming a lot with your memory. <laughs> go, go to Psalm 110. It'd be better. I wasn't planning to. But just to, you see it yourself. Psalm 110. David writes, Jehovah, the Lord, said unto my Lord, one that David says, he is my Lord. I recognize him as my Lord. This one is, 
it's declared to him, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, roll thou in the midst of thine enemies. So you have this sense of reigning and ruling. Thy people shall be made willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord has sworn and will not repent, thou art. This one who is at the right hand is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you read that and you're meant to be pondering. Messiah, Messiah is a priest, but not after the order of Aaron, after the order of Melchizedek. And you immediately, that's what I'm saying, that there's a forewarning in David's prophecy of the abolition of the Levitical priesthood. It's right there. The one who has all authority is going to be appointed priest forever. There will be no end to his priesthood. No need to replace his priesthood. No abolition of his priesthood. It will be forever. So you have in Psalm 110 a forewarning. The Lord is revealing prophetically through David. Don't depend on the Levitical priesthood. It doesn't deal with the problem, but there's another priest who's coming, and he will. He will deal with it. He will deal with the problem. Man's real problem. So as I say, there's a forewarning then in David's prophecy. Go back to Hebrews 7. We're told in verse 13, He of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. In fact, put it this way, there's no argument. There's no argument that our Lord sprang out of Judah. We know this. We knew it before He came. Prophetically, we've known about this. Genesis 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Psalm 132, verse 11, The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. Micah 5, 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, have been from of old, from everlasting. Luke 1, 32, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Romans 1, 3, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Revelation 5, verse 5, One of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. He's not stating anything revolutionary here. But here's the problem. Of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood? Moses said nothing about this. That is acknowledged. No one argues about that. But here is where the issue comes in. Verse 12, the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. What the apostle is arguing here is 
since it is plain that the priesthood must be changed by prophecy, by declaration in Psalm 110, therefore the undergirding law changes. When I say law, I'm not talking about... I mean, there are various ways in which the Bible uses the word law. So sometimes it can refer to really all of the Old Testament. Sometimes it refers to the uh, books of Moses. Sometimes it refers to the ceremonial activities. Sometimes it refers to the Ten Commandments. I put it to you that what is being addressed here is specific to the laws that address the Levites. Therefore, the ceremonial activity. And that law must change. That law appointed that it must be of the sons of Aaron that the priesthood is undertaken. And it gave all sorts of other laws and descriptions. It gave certain limitations. I mean, if they had certain shortcomings physically, Leviticus makes it plain that if they had these physical shortcomings, they couldn't assume the role. And I think that's part of what's being addressed when you get to verse 16. He was made not after the law of a carnal, a, a, a physical, a, 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 this, this kind of earthbound, limited commandment. So these commandments were given, they governed Israel and governed the Levites regarding the priesthood. But verse 12 is saying, if the priesthood being changed... And he's assuming it's changed because prophetically it has been declared so in Psalm 110. There is made of necessity a change also of the law. And that word change is giving an indication. He's, he's putting it out there. He's arguing the case. It needs to be abolished. It needs to be removed. It doesn't stay the same. That's the point. The argument here, beloved, the argument here is really a preparation. It's a preparation for the people that both Thinking right now, thinking right now, you have to give up your sense of trust, hope, or valuing the Levitical priesthood. It doesn't have value now. And there are just a few short years when Jerusalem's going to fall. And the whole practice of the Levitical priesthood will end. And let me just state, let me just state, it has never been assumed again. No resumption of all that activity, it's never happened. These sacrifices aren't going on today. They haven't gone on for millennia. The city fell. The temple was destroyed. They would have a hard time even determining who the sons of Aaron are in order to even conduct legally the priesthood. God's word, however, gave forewarning. This is changing. This is ending. There's another priesthood that will last forever. And so the priesthood being changed. And let me just put it out to you. The lawgiver has a right to change his law. He can give for a time temporarily a priesthood, and then he can replace it with another. There's no problem as long as it's God that's doing the changing. And that's what's taking place. The Lord Jesus comes to assume a role prophetically um, expected and anticipated. And you think about it. Part of what Melchizedek, or part of what Psalm 110 is showing is this combination. We've addressed this before. But this combination between 
royalty and priesthood because he is set at the right hand to reign. But he is told he's going to be a priest. I don't want to go over all ground, but let me state it just plainly. This is a problem. Combining the position of priest and king is something you don't do. God's word created a clear division between the civil and the ecclesiastical. But there is to be seen now in the Messiah a unifying of these. That division was intended to help them understand that not until we see one who unifies these roles can we be sure that the Messiah has come. So this is all being pointed to in Psalm 110. And what the apostle is doing is he's basically arguing from Psalm 110 and making logical deductions, stating to them this has to be expected. And since the royal line can't change, he has to come from Judah. Therefore, the priesthood must of necessity change. They could, if they had just paused over Psalm 110 for a few minutes, if they had just studied Psalm 110, and I don't know all the Jewish commentators, I don't know if they began to see it at any point, if any of them ever had any light on it years ago. I don't know. I have no idea. But I imagine if some of them had their head screwed on, and a little light and insight and help from the Holy Spirit studying that, they would see, they would see what's being implied. Messiah is from Judah. We know that. And Messiah is priest. Therefore, something must change regarding the priesthood. Levi has to be done away, replaced with a different priesthood, one after the order of Melchizedek. One who comes who has no genealogy. We don't know his beginning. We don't know his ending. All the rest of it that we've dealt with already and before. So, we've seen then the obvious imperfection. Note also the scriptural expectation. The scriptural expectation. Verse 15. And it is yet far more evident. This is even more clear. For that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm emphasizing the forever because that's, that's the point. When he keeps repeating this verse, it's not repetition for repetition's sake. It is underlining certain truths in that text. And here is the fact that this is a priest forever. Note a couple of things here. We have an independent priest. An independent priest. It is yet far more evident, verse 15, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. Another priest. Interesting word. In our translation, sometimes we miss little details that can be helpful and edifying. For example, in John 14, when you're reading the language of the Lord Jesus to comfort his disciples as he has told them he must go and leave them, what does he say? He promises another comforter who will abide with them forever. The word another in Greek signifies one of the same kind, a comforter of the same kind. 
the Holy Spirit's going to come and the way in which I have comforted you, he will comfort you. The way in which I have ministered to you, he will minister to you. He will abide with you forever. You will never be without. The same comfort I provide, the Spirit will provide. He will communicate to you all the blessings of the gospel, all the promises there. Yea, and amen in Christ. He will communicate them to your heart. He will be with you to the end of the age. Another of the same kind. Here, the word is different. It's another that's different. So you see that clearly. What we've already considered there ariseth another priest. This one is distinct. He is independent. That's why he is after the order of Melchizedek. He's not like Aaron. He's not like Aaron's sons. He is different. And when you think about it clearly, you should be grateful. Because in that priesthood, you had indications of their shortcoming, didn't you? On the Day of Atonement, what did the priest have to do? He had to go through a ritual himself, ceremonially dealing with the fact that he himself was a sinner before he could conduct the work mediating on behalf of Israel. At the very ordination, when he is set aside for the role of being priest, that also indicated a man who needs cleansing. But here you have another, a different priest, one who's after a different order, one is not from that genealogical descent from Aaron and so on. He, is, he comes in distinct. That's what you need. You, need. you do not need. You do not need a priest arising from ordinary generation. You need one who is incarnate by a work of a miracle of the Holy Spirit. The incarnation which one becomes man yet without sin, without the imputation of Adam's guilt in and of himself, experiencing that fallen nature that we experience, that position of being sinful from our very beginnings. You need a different one. So he is an independent priest, but that's not just seen in the language of another it's also seen in the language, ariseth, verse 15, there ariseth another priest. Fascinating little grammatical thing here where you find this word in the middle voice. And the middle voice indicates, denotes the fact that the subject, the person here, is involved in what's going on. It's not happening to him. Now you get to thinking about that. You get to thinking about how did the priests of Levi come to their place? It was by something completely, nothing to do with them. They arose by virtue of the fact that they were born into a certain family. They came into their position by virtue of the fact that they were born without certain imperfections that prevented them from, from being in that role. But here is one who arises and he is very much involved in his right to take that place. Oh, I think you have indicated here, even in the subtlety of the grammar, one who has earned the right to be at the Father's right hand. One who has earned the right to be a priest forever. 
because he has taken our humanity and he has had our sins laid on him and he has lived a perfect life. And by the imputation of our guilt to him and the imputation of his righteousness to us and his perfect obedience, he ascends up into heaven, taking humanity to the right hand of God, ever living, to be a permanent priest of the people of God. He arose distinct from other priests. This is an independent priest. And it's also an indestructible priest, isn't it? That we have here. Verse 16, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless or an indestructible life. For he testifieth thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, just, oh, you Israelites, oh, if you just ponder Psalm 110 verse 4 and its implications, it is saying there's a priest who is coming who will not be temporary in his work. Every priest you look at, he began his study at 25. He takes on full responsibility at 30. He carries on that work for 20 years. At 50, essentially, he takes on a form of retirement. And while he may help out around in various ways, no doubt, the actual primary role and work and function is over for him. The heavy labor of the priesthood is gone in 20 years. So you see the rotation of one priest after another, rising and falling, rising and falling, in their prime and then in their decline. You see them over and over again, but here is another. Here is one not, not like Aaron, not like his sons. He is a priest forever, forever. And so he's not put there by some mere law that designates him a right to be there for a short period of time and which naturally falls away. But he is there in the power of an endless life, yes, because he has overcome the experience that these other priests have succumbed to, hasn't he? They, they, they get sick, they get old, they get tired, they get weary, they, things change for them. Just like they changed for you. But here's one who faced the last great enemy, death, head on. And he took all, all that's involved in the curse, he faced it like a great, vast army that seems impossible to defeat. He looks it straight in the eye and he faces it head on. And he comes out the other side, victorious. I lives. And death can no longer touch him. It has no authority over him. He is victorious over it. He lives in the power of an endless life. An indestructible priest. Like I said, you read Leviticus 21 you'll see there the defects of those priests, the blindness, lameness, all sorts of other things are categorized that would prevent them. This carnal, this physical commandment, this is different. Here's another one who's not after that. 
but lives in his priesthood in the power of an endless life. For he testified, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the expectation. Which brings us thirdly and finally, the gospel assurance. The gospel assurance. Verse 18, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law being made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh to God. Two things. There's removing the weak and recognizing the better. Removing the weak. A disannulling of the commandment, going before, for, or because of the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. There's a disannulling. There's an abolition of the commandment, of the law, of things that govern the Levitical priesthood. It's disannulled. It's abolished. Now, we're sitting here, I think, we're all Gentiles, I may be wrong. We sit here and we, we can't begin to comprehend this. This has been functioning for centuries. This is the heart of their worship. The men are told to go up three times a year and make sure they're in Jerusalem, involved in all that's going on. This is part of the fabric of their being. From their earliest memories, part of those memories involve going to the temple, being involved in all that the Levitical priesthood does. Seeing it for themselves, watching the mediatorial connection of what they're doing. And the apostles saying, it is disannulled. It is abolished. This is what happened at the cross. This is why the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. It is over for the Levites. It is replaced by another priest. Work is done. They were holding on. But the reality is, it was weak and unprofitable. Not that it had no benefit. That's not what he's saying. It pointed, it taught, it instructed, it was helpful. But it couldn't deal with the bottom line. Back to verse 11. Perfection. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should rise? It couldn't obtain the objective. Making sinners perfect. So there's the removing of the weak. There's recognizing the better. The law made nothing perfect, verse 19. But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh to God. What's this better hope? It is a different priesthood. It is a priesthood that's not after Aaron, the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. It's set apart. It's not tied into genealogy as far as like the Levites were. It is this one distinct priest of the Most High God. One who is king of righteousness. One who rules and gives peace to Jerusalem. This, this one. He comes in and gives a better hope. A question, friends, before we close. Children, listen to me. Some of this may be over your head, but let me get to real simple truths now. You need a better hope. That better hope is in Jesus Christ, boys and girls. It's in Jesus Christ. A better hope. A hope 
It is not dependent on the fact that you're good at saying your memory verses and attending church and singing hymns and doing the things your mom and dad ask of you. Your better hope is not in your Bible reading every day and on how well you perform the things that you're asked to do. That's not a better hope. That's a hope in you. You can't save yourself. And some of you that are older, let me make no assumptions that you have resolved this in your mind because perhaps you've not. Perhaps you're still thinking that merely showing up at church, being born into a Christian home, being an American, living in Greenville, coming to a church like this is enough to give you hope. It doesn't. It has no grounds. It has no value. It can't obtain the objective of making you perfect. But there's a better hope. Look on to Jesus. Make him the author and finisher of your faith. Make sure you're resting fully, freely, completely, entirely, absolutely in Jesus Christ. You see in him everything you need. To what? End of verse 19. Draw nigh unto God. It's Jesus Christ. Or you never will draw nigh to God. Oh, you may say prayers. You're not drawing nigh to God. You'll be drawing nigh to Him with your lips. Your heart is far from Him because you reject the only mediator of God's elect, Jesus Christ. Don't continue in that folly. Come today. Seek the Lord. Seek Him this very moment. Let's bow together in prayer. Boys and girls, are you saved? Are you in Christ? Do you have a better hope? Do you have assurance that your sins are all washed away? If not, I encourage you, talk to mom, talk to dad, you can talk to me. But even where you are, you can, you can just cry out. Cry out that he might save you. Remember what we read? In Psalm 34, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. He hear your cry too. Just ask him to save you. Wash away your sins. Acknowledge that your only hope is Jesus Christ. He will hear your prayer. He will save your soul. Gracious God, bless your word. Continue to give us grace to draw nigh to thee through the merit of Jesus Christ. As Peter made so plain, neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So help us recognize that as it's expressed in the priesthood that Jesus brings us near and he's the only one who can. May we as a church be a people who constantly live our lives in light of the victorious work of Christ. May we daily rest in his finished work. May we daily be found coming near to God through Christ, trusting in him alone. Deliver us from mere religious expression. Deliver us from any carnal dependence. Deliver us from having a name to live when we're dead. Revive us. Revive our hope. This better hope that's found in Christ alone. 
May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with the people of God now and evermore. Amen.